You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded in Chicago at the Clio Cloud Conference, which has returned to the beautiful Radisson Blue Aqua Hotel. We're here to cover this event for you, our listeners, and joining me now, well, I have two special people. Uh, off to my right here, I have co-host again one more time. I have Victor Lee, the legal affairs writer at ABA Journal. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. I love it. Victor asked some incredible questions, and that's great because we have a a special keynote speaker today. We have Professor David Wilkins. He is the Lester Kizzle Professor of Law, Vice Dean for Global Initiatives on the Legal Profession and Faculty Director of the Program on the Legal Profession and the Center for Lawyers and the Professional Services Industry at Harvard Law School. In addition, he is a Senior Research Fellow of the American Bar Foundation and a Fellow of the Harvard University. University, Edmund J. Saffer Foundation Center for Ethics. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here again. Yeah, that title, that is uh, quite a mouthful. So uh, in part, I put that in there because it was a challenge. <laughs> yeah, that intense sense will get you uh, not even a cup of coffee anymore. No, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. But uh, you were uh, making the keynote and we just found out the title had been changed. We got it right for the podcast. It's called Disruptive Innovations and the Future of Law Firms in the Global Age of More for Less. Did I get that right? You got it right. All right, perfect. Well, uh, Victor, I think I'll start off. My first question will be just give us a general synopsis, kind of 50,000-foot view, and we'll get into details. So at the 50,000-foot level, the talk really tries to locate what's happening to lawyers in a much broader context. Lawyers, as always, we tend to put ourselves at the center of the universe. But in fact, actually, what's happening in the legal profession is really a subset of what's happening in a much broader sense to the world around us. And I try to talk a little bit about the big changes that are happening in the world, globalization, the incredible increase in the speed of information technology, the kind of blurring together of the categories we use to understand the world, like law and business or public and private, and try to say why are those things reshaping the world, and then if they're reshaping the world, why is it that they are reshaping the legal profession and how lawyers can respond? Well, one thing that I wanted to ask you is, I mean, just in the title, you talk about more for less, and also in your in your presentation, you talked a lot about that. Could you talk a little bit about that right now in this podcast? Like, what do you mean by more for less? Is it just bargain shopping, or is that is there something more to it than that? Well, I think if we look around the world, again, just to start with something that's not in law, uh, about two years ago, I, I have a MacBook Air. Two years ago, I did something stupid by spilling something on it on, the, on a plane ride. <laughs> I've done, I've shorted, done that. Shorted it out. Uh, after I picked myself off the floor in despair, I went out and got a new one. And the new one not only cost less, but was better. It had twice the power and it cost maybe 50% or 30% less. That's what we expect, actually, in almost every other part of our society. Those expectations are now being made for lawyers. Lawyers, whether they are in law firms or in-house legal departments, big firms, small firms, are being asked to produce more value for less money. And you're right to say it's partly, quote, bargain shopping. But the problem with bargain shopping is that at the end of the day, you realize if you cut the price too much, you're not getting what you want, right? Right. You cut the quality. So it's also about delivering 
high quality or high value for less money. That's the challenge I think lawyers are facing. Now, one of the things that, uh, and this just kind of dovetails nicely with uh, my next question here, one of the things that you were talking about was the old way you grew your law business, your law practice. You, you raised your rates and you had leverage. Those were the, the two primary factors, but that era that lasted a long time and was very good to many of us in the in the practice of law is, is, is dying away very quickly. You're talking about this era of more quality for less. And so you had uh, quite a list of things that, uh, that lawyers need to be focusing on to provide that greater quality. And uh, I'd like to kind of get into that a little bit. So if we start from the proposition that the old way we used to make money very reliably is under pressure. And again, I want to be clear, it's not that there will never be another rate increase or that you won't hire another associate, but nobody thinks those things are going to work the same way that they had in the, you know, the run-up to 2008. So then how do you increase value? Well, one is how do you try to leverage new technologies and new resources in order to allow you to do work more efficiently. How do you get more out of your people? And I'm not talking more like more hours grinding them up in a kind of 19th century sweatshop capitalism way, but more (laughs) innovation, more creativity, more collaboration around your people. One of the big trends that I talk about is that Value is more and more created not by an individual, but by a network of individuals often working in different organizations. So how do you find ways to help your people be more collaborative internally as well as externally across different kinds of providers to provide the value that your clients are looking for? Well, the collaboration was something that I also wanted to ask you about. I think we've seen with a lot of tech companies, I mean, Clio being one of them, is that they're pretty open to um, partnering up with other companies, um, working with other companies and whatnot. And in your talk, you talked about how law firms need to do something similar, both internally and externally. So one thing that I was curious about is that, you know, you have a lot of law firms that take the position that, okay, well, we're not going to work with other people, but we're going to create the tools that we need ourselves. We'll create our own innovation labs. We'll create our own R&D groups. Do you think that approach is is feasible, or do they have to, at some point, drop that and work with other firms and other providers? One way to think about this is, if you look at Nobel Prize winners in science, you know, physics, mathematics, chemistry, medicine, if you just go back and look at the list, until, you know, maybe... 20 or 30 years ago, they were all individuals or maybe one, two people working at the same institution. Now they're all being shared by people around the globe. Why? Because if you're going to solve a big problem, you need to have a big solution and you need to be able to work with people from lots of different uh, orientations, points of view, skill set, expertise. And lawyers, we're never, you know, we're not good at it, and it's not really our fault. It, you know, blame the law schools. When you're starting from law school, if you work collaboratively with someone else on something, you know what we call it? Cheating. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, you know, we do almost nothing in teams. You know, maybe moot court, but that turns out to be I did my half of the brief, you did your half of the brief. And if you ask me about your issues, and the, I say, no, ask him. So 
in the business schools, in the medical schools, and in the public policy schools, and almost every other form of education, people right from the beginning are taught to work collaboratively in teams. And increasingly, those teams have to move across organizational boundaries because the organizations aren't big enough, don't have enough expertise, don't have enough uh, resources in order to provide everything that needs to be a part of a collaborative solution for a problem. Uh, and I'll just say the biggest line that lawyers need to cross is to work collaboratively with their clients. Uh, lawyers oftentimes have a very difficult time actually collaborating with their clients on producing a solution, which means a two-way street, not just the lawyers telling the clients what to do and the clients listening, or the clients dictating to the lawyers what they should do, but rather working together to figure out what is it the problem, what are the range of solutions, what are the things that matter most to the client, and how can the lawyer be a positive way of helping the client to solve that problem. That's great. I think you're reading my mind. You know, we were all together at the ABA Summit on the Innovation and Legal Services out at Stanford. And, uh, you know, it was uh, President Hubbard, I'm going to kind of paraphrase what he said, you know, the earth is shaking beneath our feet. There's a change going on in the law. But I kind of want to apply that towards what you were just talking about, that that sort of upward pressure from the clients. And and during your talk today, you, you did talk about sort of this, we have more educated clients. There's more information. Uh, specifically, you referred to the asymmetry of information between the buyer and the seller, this between uh, the attorney and the client, that asymmetry is is d- dissipated a little bit. And so there's less of it. And so now, since the client is armed with more information, the expectation is higher. So I kind of want to get into that. Like, how do lawyers react to that in this kind of environment? I mean, obviously, you have to embrace it, but how? So the point you made is the first and most important one is that you can't try to pretend it doesn't exist or to mystify what the lawyer is doing even more to make it harder and harder for the clients to understand. Uh, Instead, what you need to do is to work with the client to understand the client's point of view. So sometimes when I talk to law firms, I cite some work actually that I didn't do myself, but it was done by BTI Consulting, a very good consulting firm, about just the mismatch between the way lawyers see problems and the way their clients see problems. This is more in the corporate context. But one of the things I said today is clients don't have legal problems. They actually don't. They have problem problems of which they would like to take the legal part and reduce it to as small a part of the problem as possible so they could concentrate on the part of the problem that for them is the most important. That's usually a business part or a human relationships part. I was talking to a lot of people in divorce or family law or it might be an organizational part about how do we make our institution work better. Lawyers need to understand that a lot of the information they need is got to come from the client to figure out what it is the client really wants, but then to understand what is the value, the unique set of values of the information that the lawyers have. So when I say information asymmetry has been reduced, it doesn't mean it's gone to zero or that the clients necessarily know everything they actually want or need, but it has to be, again, a dialogue, a collaborative process if we're going to find what the real understanding of value is on both sides. Obviously, we're at a a technology conference, and you talked a lot about Watson in particular, but also just legal technology in general. I was wondering if I could get your take on just what are some things that 
computer, and not necessarily Watson specifically, but what are some things that, that computers are already doing as well or even better than attorneys, and where do you see it going in, in the next five, 10 years? So I think we're just on the cusp of this, but there is no question that, whether it's Watson or some other kind of big data, artificial intelligence combination, is going to be able to process a huge amount more information than any individual could ever do, or even any existing collective organization of individuals. Again, one of the things I said in the talk was that our knowledge management system in law is mostly, you know, the experience of individual lawyers and go ask somebody who's done it before. The problem with that is you're limited by who you know and who you can ask and what that person knows. What these platforms can do is to process huge amounts of information in a very short amount of time and increasingly in a learning model in which the you know in which the machine is learning about what's valuable as it goes along now that though introduces a complication and i think the watson people would be the first to acknowledge this you have to teach watson or train watson in order to get value and that means that people need to know what they're looking for which in a lot of ways is a big challenge that lawyers face is what is it that we should be looking for in order to demonstrate that we're providing the kind of value that we seek. So I think, look, we're already seeing many lower end legal tasks that are, whether that's, you know, searching through billions of email records for pattern recognition or trying to pull out uh, keywords or phrases. But I think that's just at the very beginning of the kinds of things that we're likely to see if we look at other areas. You know, I mean, there's a Watson-like artificial intelligence program that you could give your stock portfolio and it will manage it for you. And frankly, the available data so far looks like it's doing as well or better than, you know, brokers, traditional brokers would do. I think to this point, we've talked about some of the challenges that this this new environment in law uh, is affecting. Uh, you know, lawyers that are practicing today, they're going to have to make some adjustments. And so you also uh, had a glimmer of hope there because with some of these challenges do come opportunities. And in particular, I wanted to, you had this great example of a minimal viable product. And so in manufacturing, that makes a lot of sense. But when you're providing a service, that may not necessarily make a lot of sense. Sometimes law it's difficult to do that. And so can, can you walk the audience through the, the minimally viable product concept? Well, this again, and I have to always give credit to my uh, student, Romine Sheath, who came up with this example of, you know, two ways to think about building a car. One is the traditional way in which, you know, you start with wheels and then you build the chassis and then you put in the engine and then eventually you end up with a car. Or the second is, a completely different conceptual way in which you start with a skateboard and then you move to a scooter, then you move to a bicycle, then you move to a motorcycle, and then eventually you get a car. They're obviously not exactly the same, but it's about understanding how to provide value at each step along the way. And in law, we tend to focus almost exclusively on the end result. Did you win the case or not? Did the transaction close or not? But from the client's point of view, there are many intermediate steps that might have value. For example, 
how quickly did we move from the filing of the complaint to the motion for summary judgment or how much management time is involved in actually overseeing the production of information both for our side or the other side? How distracted are the top leaders in the company of focusing on the, uh, this particular issue? I think we need to think with our clients what's really important to you So the purpose of that diagram is also to say, in both cases, the client probably said, I want a car, but actually what they may have really wanted was a quicker, easier way to get around and that it would be nice to have a car at the end of the day, but it would really be nice to have some way that's better than walking at the moment. And how do we give them that way that's better than walking, even if it's only an intermediate solution to what is ultimately a long-term and complex problem. I want to give the last uh, question to Victor. He looks like he's got one uh, brewing there. Well, um, I mean, you mentioned your student, and obviously you're, uh, you're in the education field. I mean, maybe Harvard grads don't have problems finding jobs or adapting to uh, the legal industry now, but just if you could talk a little bit about legal education, you talked a little bit about it earlier, but what are some things that law schools can do better to prepare students for uh, you know, what the new normal is? So let me just be clear, our students are very lucky, but all students are facing a different world. And, you know, whether it's, quote, getting a job or much more importantly, building a viable and successful and satisfying long-term career in the law. I think the latter is a lot more challenging than the former and the latter everybody is facing. And the first thing law schools could do is focus on this. That is, you know, basically, law school is very good about teaching law. It's not bad about teaching you how to be a Supreme Court justice. And, you know, actually, some of my students have gone on to be Supreme Court justices. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But for the most part, most people are going to be lawyers, and there's very little attention to the not just the, the the technical part of the skills part of the practice of law not to, that's very important but the thinking of yourself as what does it mean to be a lawyer and how to build a career very little engagement with this when i tell people what i do the first reaction is almost always there was nobody in law school who did that when i was in law school and that even goes back to people who graduated not so long ago so i once wrote a paper uh, several years ago saying the professional responsibility of law schools is to study and teach about the profession and so one is just to pay attention to what the changing realities to two is to try to take what you learn from that and try to build more of it into the curriculum. So I already said more opportunities for collaboration among students, for teamwork. We teach, now there's a mandatory course at Harvard Law School called the Problem Solving Workshop and all the students work at everything in teams. But that's just one course. It's just the beginning and how to collaborate across institutions. I think you've had Michelle DiStefano from Law Without Walls, also my former student. I'm very proud of. And, you know, Law Without Walls is a brilliant way of teaching students how to collaborate across geography, time zones, culture, institutional boundaries, uh, organizational specialties. So they've got law and business school students. We need to have much more of that. We need to get students to bring technology into the classroom. 
and to think about the ways in which technology and other things, not just technology, process management, quality metrics, a lot of other things that we know are going out in the world, how to teach our students at least the fundamentals or the basics about that so that when they enter the workplace, they're not either afraid of these tools or can begin to use them in ways that we might not even be able to uh, anticipate to create innovation in what the law of the 21st century is going to look like. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program for today, but I, I want to thank my co-host, Victor Lee, legal affairs writer for the AVA Journal, and, and Professor uh, David Wilkins also for uh, joining me today. So just one last thing before we uh, close it out. If, I, if our listeners wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way to reach you? So, Victor, let's start with you. I'm on Twitter. Law Scribbler is my handle, and also uh, my email address is victor.lee at americanbar.org. Professor Wilkins. So I'm not nearly as hip as uh, Victor. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, so I talk a lot about these things, but I'm actually not so much uh, engaged in them directly. But the best way to find out about what we're doing is to go to the Center on the Legal Professions website, which is clp.law.harvard.edu. You can also find me on the Harvard Law School website, but the center's website gives a good summary and overview of what we're doing. And in particular, I'd say one way if people are interested is we have a new digital magazine called The Practice, which you can find there and which you can subscribe there. And we did a whole issue on disruptive innovation and we kind of feature a lot of the work and the research we're doing. Excellent. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti signing off from Chicago. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.